Psalm 37. Thank you, Lee, for reading that, all 40 verses of it. We're going to be here a while uh, picking apart. No, we're not going to pick apart every verse, uh, but we're going to catch the, the, the main idea of what the writer of this psalm, David, is saying here. And I'm sure that we've all been there where things are, are not going well for you, things are not going as you had planned, things are not going as it seems they should, and yet it, from your perspective and, and from your heart, you're doing everything quote-unquote right. You're, you're, you're doing what you feel like God has called you to do, you're where you feel like God wants you to be, uh, and yet things aren't working out. And, and then there, there's other people in your life that seem like they're doing everything wrong, living however they want to live, doing however they please, just completely have turned their backs on the Lord, not that they ever had turned to the Lord, but they seem to be prospering. Everything seems to be great for them. They don't, they don't seem to have the struggles, the heartaches, the hurts, here we are doing things, quote-unquote, right, and we're suffering. And others don't really care for the Lord at all, and they seem to be prospering. And if we dwell on that, that begins to eat at us. That'll begin to eat at us. We become resentful. We can become jealous. We, we, we even sometimes contemplate ceasing doing the things we know to do. In, in some ways, throw the towel in. And there are many areas in our lives where this thing, these, these attitudes and these things pop up. Money, money can be the, the root of this resentment. Our jobs, family, marriage, kids, material things, they're all, they're all can be sources. We look around and we think, why, why did she get married? Why, why didn't I get married? I should have got married. Why, why, did, why, did her kid, why did their kids make the team? My kids should have made the team. My kid's a better athlete than theirs. I go to church. They don't even go to church. Why did their kid make the team? Why, why, did they, why are they healthy and I'm sick? I, I love the Lord. I serve the Lord. Why am I sick? Why this? Why that? I think we've all, if we're honest, we've all thought that. We've all wondered that. We've all thought, here I am. Serving the Lord, does it pay to serve the Lord? Does it pay to be faithful to the Lord? You know, do, a pastors aren't immune. Well, why isn't my church growing? Why do they get all the baptisms? Why do they? We're, we're not immune to it. Does it pay to serve the Lord? And believe me, Satan will take advantage. You dwell on these things, Satan will hop in there very quickly and take advantage of these things. Bring the Lord into question, bring His faithfulness into question, His goodness into question, your devotion into question. Sometimes it doesn't seem that it pays to follow God. Sometimes when the evil prosper and the good suffer, our tendency is to doubt God, especially if you're the one suffering while seemingly doing the right things. 
And if we're not careful, if we don't, if we're not taking the time to develop godly perspectives, if we have not cultivated a confidence in who God is, a confidence in His character, a knowledge of His character, we will be tempted to not walk faithfully as we are. And David, who wrote Psalm 37, knew this feeling very well. Although he had been anointed as king, David spent most of his reign running from Saul. David has been anointed king, and he has spent most of the time as the anointed king of Israel on the run, being pursued being tr- with Saul trying to kill him. At times, his own son Absalom Absalom was trying to kill him. And on several occasions, David consistently did the right things. He could have retaliated. He could have killed Saul multiple occasions. And David did the right thing only to watch Saul return to the palace and David to return to the wilderness in hiding. David did the right thing. He did the obedient thing. And yet, he suffered. Saul goes back to the palace. David sleeps in a cave. Time and time again, David honored. Time and time again, David obeyed. Time and time again, David followed the Lord only to be rejected to be pursued, to have people turn their backs on him. And David writes Psalm 37 to share his insights into this problem, to show God's faithfulness throughout his life. And and this psalm really and truly reflects the wisdom, it reflects the intimacy, it reflects the confidence, it reflects the relationship that he cultivated through these times with the Lord. He learned that no matter what, he could trust the Lord, that no matter what, that he did prosper, that no matter what, having the relationship with the Lord was enough. And I, I want to study this together today. I want us to, to, to hopefully for the Lord to teach us today, for David to teach us what he learned. And, and as he contrasts the wicked and to those who trust and serve the Lord, that he challenges us not to envy the wicked. He reveals their end. And, and this, this psalm, it is a study. It is a study of contrasts. Ultimately, it is contrasting those who do not love the Lord with those who love the Lord. In terms that we don't really like to use. Wicked for those who don't love the Lord. Righteous for those who do love the Lord. It's a study of contrasts. And some of you, I, I thought about this, I was telling somebody yesterday, as I, as I review this, I have to get all this in uh, to the printers and things like that by uh, Friday morning. And Friday afternoon, I was just reviewing it, and I kind of get the skeleton in, and then I keep adding to it. And some of you, I, I know some of you like to guess what the fill-ins are, so I'm going to give you a little hint here. Numbers 1, 2, and 3 all start with C. I'm going to give you a little hint. That's free today. You can pay me later, so uh, it, maybe this will help your percentage. But just the one, two, and three, all of them start with C. I guess that means after two and a half years, I'm truly becoming a Baptist pastor. There's, there's, a, there's a common letter in the whole outline. So, you know, I didn't mean for that to happen. It was totally by accident. 
Um, I'm, not, I'm not gifted enough or clever enough or know the English language well enough to make that happen on a regular basis. I don't, I don't, I don't know enough synonyms or whatever that is that starts with C, so we just happen to fall into that today. But let's look at that. I, hopefully, I, as I thought about it, hopefully it'll help us remember it. Hopefully, hopefully you can just remember, what was the sermon about? I know there was three C's. As you start rambling through all the words you know with C, and you can figure it out. But uh, let's look at this Psalm 37 here and, and draw a few applications and, and, and teach what David was teaching us here in Psalm 37. First thing, first thing I think the Lord, but through David, wants to teach us this. In order to resist the temptation of envying sinners... We must completely submit to the Lord and trust in His character. In order to not fall into that tendency, that trap of envying sinners, envying those of the world, we've got to trust in God's character. And David talks about that in verses 1-11. through 11. There, There's 40 verses here. I'm not going to read them all, but David says three times in verses 1-11, through 11, Do not fret. Look at verse 1. Don't fret. Don't fret because of evildoers. Look at verse 7. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently. Don't fret because of him who prospers in his way. Look at verse 8. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Don't fret. It only leads to evil doing. The word there, fret, means to burn. It means to be kindled. It's pointing to anger. It's pointing to frustration. The, the psalmist David here points and he says, The righteous don't be envious. Do not fret. It's a very real possibility. We've all been there. If we're honest, we've all been envious. We, we could be sitting here in the pew right now envious of others. Envious of sinners. Envious of the wicked. Three times in the first eight verses, David says, Don't do that. Do not fret. Because of evildoers. When you see that in Scripture, please know, repetition like that is important because he's saying, this is the main situation, this is the main issue, this is what I'm trying to tell you. You don't worry about what evildoers are doing. You don't fret because they seem to be prospering. If we allow ourselves to be captivated with the here and now, if we allow ourselves to, to live by what we see, by what we feel rather than what we know about God and live by faith, trust me, you'll become envious of sinners. I will become envious of sinners. We don't live by faith. I mean, we don't live by sight. We live by faith. We, we, don't, we don't live by, what we, what, by, by the world's definitions and, and thoughts of what, what makes sense. We live by the Word of God. We live by what we know about God, His character, His promises. And if we don't, and if we don't sit back and trust the Lord, as He says many times here, verse 3, trust the Lord. Number, verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Verse 7, rest in the Lord. Do you see where the focus is? The focus is on the Lord. The focus is on the character of the Lord. It's not on our circumstances. They're, they're, if, if we look at the world and think, man, they're sinning and they're getting away with it. That can become very frustrating. 
Listen to me. David makes sure we understand they're not getting away with it. Romans 2, 4 says, Do not think lightly of God's kindness and tolerance, knowing that it leads you to repentance. God may be being patient with that individual to lead them to repentance. And by the way, He was kind with all of us in our sin and led us to repentance. He was patient with us. And what this psalm reminds us and the, the, the antidote to envying the wicked and not trusting in the Lord is this. The earthly prosperity of the wicked is temporary and short-lived. David says that over and over. Verse 2, they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Cease from anger. Do not fret it yet for a little while. Look at verse 9. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. Verse 10. Yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more, but yet the humble will inherit the earth. The prosperity of the wicked, turning their back on God, feeling like they're getting away with it, is temporary. God is going to judge them. And it will not be pretty. And look what this section, again, the antidote to fret and to worry and envy, again, has to do with the character of God. Verse 3, he says, and you're feeling there, trust in the Lord. Ultimately, our worldview, ultimately the way that we live our lives, ultimately the way we conduct ourselves, it all boils down to trust. Do we trust God? We will never, ever get in a position, believers, where it's not going to come down to trust and to faith. Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it is impossible to please God. Life on this earth, the way that we live our lives, is not going to make sense. It's not going to balance out. The world is not going to think it's, they're not going to agree with us. It's going to be counterproductive to their philosophies. Psalm 62, 8 says to trust in the Lord at all times. Ultimately, our steadfastness, ultimately, ultimately the reason we don't waver boils down to who God is, who we know Him to be. Look at Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Many of you probably have that in the memory. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. You can Two options. You can lean on your own understanding or you can trust the Lord. The, the, the writer of the proverb is saying, trust the Lord. Verse 6, in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. You're acknowledging that there is a God, that even though things don't look right, even though things seem to not be working out, there is a God who loves me, there is a God who has, who has cared for me, who has set forth my life in motion, who has promised to look after me, and I'm going to trust Him. And what the writer here is saying is that our focus has to remain on God and not our circumstances. Our focus has to remain on God and not our circumstances. We, we, we must allow who we know God to be to overrule our circumstances. We don't define God based on looking at our circumstances. We define our circumstances based on who we know God to be. We, we do not allow our circumstances to overrule who we know God to be. And five times David mentions the Lord here by name. 
To mention the Lord's name is to is to bring is to bring uh, to call upon all His attributes, everything He is, everything God was 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 captured in His name. That's why in the the second commandment, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Everything that He is is grabbed, is captured in His name. And, and again, he says the, the trust, trust in the Lord and do good. When we trust in the Lord, it overflows into our actions. And do good. Our actions, our actions tell who we're trusting and what we're trusting. And he says trust in the Lord. And secondly, he says cultivate faithfulness. Cultivate faithfulness. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. That tells me it's not automatic. Faithfulness takes time, takes effort, takes focus, it takes intentionality. It's a long, slow process. It's kind of, and and we, we, we view faithfulness kind of like we view patience. God, will you hurry up and teach me to be patient? We don't have the patience to learn to be patient. And he says, cultivate faithfulness. And, and listen, you only cultivate faithfulness by staying put in the midst of adversity. By staying focused in the midst of adversity. You don't develop faithfulness by running. You don't develop faithfulness by constantly getting out. You don't develop faithfulness by manipulating the circumstances to take them away. You develop faithfulness by staying put. Look, look at Galatians 6 verses 7 through 10. Galatians 6, uh, 7 through 10. He says... Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will, reap from, the, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Listen to what he says in verse 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good. Isn't, that's the tendency. The tendency is that we lose heart in doing good. The tendency is that the, we don't reap the crop as quickly as we think we should. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. If we quit, we are missing the opportunity to reap a crop of having cultivated faithfulness. Don't quit. Stay faithful. That don't grow weary in cultivating faithfulness. That crop may be right around the corner. Do not grow weary. Cultivate faithfulness. He also says, delight yourself in the Lord. And this verse has tremendous significance. This is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. And if we are faithful followers, we will desire the right things because God will transform our hearts. He will transform our hearts not only at salvation, but over time. You, you can look at Jeremiah 31, 31, and, and he tells us that, that he will transform our hearts. Jeremiah 31, verse 31, he says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. That's looking forward to us. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with the fathers in that day that I took them from the land to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I, listen to this. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. 
I will be their God and they will shall be my people. They will not teach again. Each man is a neighbor and each man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And I will forgive them their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. He will transform our hearts. You trust in the Lord. You cultivate faithfulness. I'm going to promise you your desires will begin to change. The things that you thought were important will not become important. And this passage, so not only is that, but he's saying our prayers. It refers to God answering our prayers of the faithful follower. You, you look at Psalm 20, verses 4 and 5. Just a couple over to the left. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your counsel. You look at Matthew 7, 7 and 8, talks about ask, seek, Knock. As we delight in the Lord, guess what? We, des- we start to desire what the Lord desires. Our, liar, our desires begin to line up with God's heart. Th- this is not a passage where we get whatever we want. This is not a name it and claim it passage. This is a passage that says you delight yourself in the Lord, your heart gets transformed to line up with God's heart. The things that matter to God matter to you. Your prayers begin to be changed because you pray according to that what matters to you. And now God can finally answer your prayers. Why? Because your desires have changed. Our prayers begin to change because our desires change. What matters to us has changed. Therefore, what we pray about has changed. Now God can answer our prayers. He wants to answer our prayers. The problem is, most of the time, my prayers, your prayers, aren't really worth answering. And and we don't really even know what we ask for. John 16, 24, he says, Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. God wants to answer our prayers. He wants to be the, the fulfiller of our joy. Asking, he says, until now you've asked nothing in my name. He, he, there's a transition there, but he's saying the name again, glory. Until now you've not asked anything for my glory. Ask that I can answer it. That your joy will be made complete, full. And, and what he's saying is be bold in your asking, but desire the Lord first. Because our desire follows delight. What we desire follows what we delight in. We delight in the things of the world. Guess where our prayers are going to be focused on the things of the world? You desire God, your prayers are going to follow that desire as well. Commit your way to the Lord, he says next. Not only trust in the Lord, cultivate faithfulness, delight in the Lord, but he says, commit your way to the Lord. Matthew 6, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You want all these things added? Commit your way to the Lord. Follow the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Cultivate faithfulness. Delight in the Lord. Desire the Lord. He's saying, you make much of God first, and, I, and, and God will answer you be steadfast and immovable, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, 15, 58, rather, God will answer. Not only commit your way to the Lord, he says in verse 7, rest in the Lord. Resting means that you truly believe God is who he says he is, and you're completely content with it. The other day, we were over at um, the student ministry, had a lake party over at the Glicks, and they have a hammock out back. And, and our daughter... Um, 
want, she, she wanted me to push her in the hammock. And she, now you know, those of us know as parents, a hammock can go wrong real quick. I mean, you can end up on America's Funniest Home Videos in about two seconds in a hammock. And, and my daughter, she just climbed right up there and she kept saying, push me higher. I thought, I'm like, eventually you're just going to make a complete circle here. But, but she climbed up in that hammock. She wanted to play in the hammock. Typically, as adults, what do we want to do in hammocks? We want to rest. We want to take a nap. We climb up in that hammock and I thought, man, that's a picture that's a picture of what it's like to rest into God. You climb up in God and you trust. You trust Him. You rest in Him. Just like we would in a hammock. You're, you're entrusting, when you climb up in that hammock, you're trusting the integrity and the character of the fabric of that hammock to hold you. When you climb up and rest in God, you're trusting His integrity, you're trusting His character to what? To hold you. That come what may, He'll hold you. And He's saying in the same way, rest in the Lord. And He, and he says to choose to envy the wicked. Listen, when we choose to envy the wicked, we are essentially attacking God's character and accusing Him of wrongdoing. Hey, God, the way that you've doled out mercy and grace and provision and all that, you're wrong. That's essentially what we're saying. We may never have the boldness to come out and say that, but when we, envy, when we do those things, when we envy the wicked, when we question that, we're essentially accusing God of wrongdoing. It's to say that you know how to run the universe better than God. And, and this issue was alive for David when he penned Psalm 37. It, it was alive in the Old Testament saints as they were looking back to Genesis 12, 1-3 and the, the Abrahamic covenant there that God would give them a seed and land and a blessing and they're looking around and saying, we have neither. Abraham's looking around and saying, hey, you've promised me to be the father of a great nation. I have this many kids. God says, just wait. We all know the story. Abraham, Sarah concocts this story. Hey, I got this little girl over here, Ishmael. I mean, uh, Hagar, we can take care of this thing on our own. Instead of just trusting and resting in the Lord. And you see the consequences of that. He's saying, rest in the Lord. Trust the character of God to provide where He said He'll provide. Trust the character and the integrity of God to fulfill a promise where there's been given a promise. For us, we've been saved, redeemed, made righteous, adopted. And yet we suffer. Some of you in this room, I, I know you're suffering. And for me to even say this, please don't. I'm not saying it casually, flippantly. We will suffer. And the tendency is to ask, what in the world is going on, God? How come they have such and such? I want such and such so badly. They don't even care about you and they've got it and I don't have it. What are you doing? What's going on? Look at verse 11. David says, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the result. You want to know what's going on? Let me tell you what's going on. You trust God's character. You cultivate righteousness rather than worldliness. Let me tell you what's going on. Verse 11. But the humble 
will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. You contrast that to the end of the wicked and they, where they're going to be destroyed. He's saying, hey, that's what's going on. That's the same promise, listen to me, same promise that Jesus made in Matthew 5, 5 regarding, regarding the Beatitudes regarding His kingdom. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. There's a payday coming. God's going God's to settle the accounts. It's coming. He's saying, but until then, you keep plodding along. You, let the, you be last so that one day you'll be first. You give everything away so that one day you'll lean on me and I'll give everything back tenfold. But J Jesus, Jesus and David, Jesus and Matthew, David and Psalm is saying, look, the meek will come out on top. Those who trust the Lord will come out okay in the end. God will make sure of that. The last will be first. The abundance of prosperity here in, in verse 11 literally means we, we think of wealth when we spot prosperity. That word there is literally pointing to peace. It's peace. It's contentment. It, it refers to, to soul prosperity, if you will, of your person. It's a peace. And what he's saying is the person who finds their adequacy in the Lord rather than things and rather than stuff, when the person who finds their adequacy in the things to come, not the things present, will have an abundant source of peace. To come what may, we're, we're going to trust. We will trust God's character and believe it no matter what. No matter what, we will believe and trust that God is good. No matter what, we will not doubt His goodness. We will seek to delight in Him. We will seek to grow in Him. We'll cultivate godliness, we'll cultivate righteousness, we'll cultivate holiness. And one day, Lord, we're trusting you that there'll be a harvest. One day there'll be a harvest. And we will reap what we have sown. Matter of fact, we will reap more than we have sown. And you can apply this to every single area of our lives. To your marriage, to your work, to your kids, to your pleasure. You name it. Do you, will we follow God or will we follow our emotions? Will we follow God or will we follow what we feel? Will we God follow God or will we follow what the world? Will we live by the God standards and what the Word says or will we conduct our lives according to what the world says? That's the question. Do we want to be made much of or do we want God to be made much of through our lives? That's the question. Are we going to take shortcuts for immediate temporary gain or will we stay the course for the long haul and trust that God ultimately is going to reap a harvest through us because there's lots of shortcuts out there that we could take there's lots of things we can do to get immediate gain and it will fade away it will wither like grass cultivate a trust of God's character in our lives. That's what David is saying. Secondly, in order to resist the temptation of envying sinners, we must be content with how the Lord deals with all of us. We must be content. In verses 12 through 26, he highlights this. We must be content with how the Lord deals with all of us. 1 Timothy 6, 6 says, but godliness is actually a means of great gain when it is accompanied by contentment. Contentment. 
couple things here in verses 12 through 26 that he says we have to be content with. We must be content with God's judgments. With God's judgments. We, we get all worked up about how things, how the wicked are doing this and that, and how, how they seem to be prospering. Look at the Lord's response. Look at verse 13. I love this verse. The, verse starting at verse 12. The, Lord, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at them. We get all worked up about it. Look at the Lord's response. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day coming. The Lord laughs. The Lord looks at the wicked, looks at their schemes, and he laughs. In Psalm 2, 4, same thing. The, the, wicked, listen, the, the wicked say this, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, that's Christ, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Why? Because their rebellion is ridiculous. Seeking to get all your gain here on this side of eternity on the earth is ridiculous. Because it's quick. It's momentary. It's fleeting. Look at verse 15. Their sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. Their own sword. They are going to go down by their own sword. Look at verse 20. But the wicked will perish and the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. Temporary. See, I, I want, if I'm not careful, I want to tell God how to punish the wicked. I want Him to do it according to my schedule, according to my terms. And guess what? All the while I forget that God didn't deal with me that way. See, I want to receive mercy. I don't want others to receive that same mercy. I want to see, receive grace, but do I want others to receive that grace? I want God to be patient with me, but am I patient with others? Do I simply trust that God knows how to punish the wicked and that He'll do so rightly and He'll do so justly? I've got to trust that. That's where Romans 12, 19 comes in. Hey, you return wicked with good and you trust the Lord to do that. You don't, you, don't take, you don't take it into your own hands. You trust the Lord with it. I've got to trust the Lord with it. We, we must be content and afford the wicked the same opportunity for grace and mercy that we receive. We've got to trust the Lord with that. He was patient with us. He'll be patient with others. And as Christians, we can be assured that even if He doesn't settle the account in this life, there is coming a judgment where everything will be made right. Revelation 6 tells us that. There's a judgment coming. We leave the vengeance to God. So be content with how He, how he deals with, with judgments. Not, not only that, we must be content with God's provision. We've got to be content with God's provision. God has promised to take care of our needs. He's promised to take care of us, but our needs may be less than what we think our needs are. That's where the problem comes in. Our needs and the needs that God says are needs oftentimes are two different things. Look at what he says in verse 24. When he falls, talking about the righteous, the verse 23, the steps of a man are established by the Lord and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be heralded headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. The context here is financially, it's materially. He says, hey, you may fall, but you will not totally fail. 
You may be persecuted, you may be stumbled, but you will not fall headlong. The Lord will sustain you. Verse 17, for the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. Look at what David says in verse 25. I have been young and now I am old. Listen to what he says. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. He says, when I was young, now I'm old. God has been faithful. I have not seen the righteous go without. Faithful. His character. Look, look at Proverbs 15, verse 16 and 17. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. Better is a dish of vegetables where love is than a fattened ox served with hatred. Verse 16, 8. All right, chapter 16, verse 8 of Proverbs. Better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. Will we be content? Will we trust? Sometimes we're quick to measure God's faithfulness by the amount of stuff we have, and the problem oftentimes isn't the stuff. The problem is with our contentment towards the stuff. And we go around and we paint a picture to the world that our God is not as awesome as this word says that He is because we're measuring Him according to our own standards and we're telling the world He's not all that when He is all that and more. And we tend, to, our problem is we tend to worship the stuff over the giver of the stuff. And sometimes God has to take away the stuff to reveal to us how much pleasure we're taking in the stuff and not the giver of the stuff. I think I just said stuff there about ten times in a, two minutes. But the problem is not God. The problem is with the stuff and it's with our attitude towards the things that He gives. 1 Timothy 6.8 says, With food and covering we shall be content. Food and covering. I'm almost certain that's not how I would measure contentment. There would be more in that category than food and covering. Maybe shelter. Maybe electricity. Food and covering, he says. Mark 8.36 says this, For what should it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That's why David says, Better is little with righteousness. Verse 16 is, is huge here. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. That's the key verse in this section. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. David says, I've seen God been faithful all my years. And he's telling us we have to trust God and his faithfulness for with what he determines to be enough, not what we determine to be enough. Paul says the very same thing in Philippians 4, 11-13. We know the passage well. He says, For I have learned to be content. I've learned it. He says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. He's saying I can do all these things. And, and here's the kicker. 
How did David learn to go hungry that God was enough even in his hunger? He went hungry. How did God know, how did David know that God was enough when he had little? When he had, because he had went through having little. See, you only learn those things through going through them. We want to learn the lessons without going through them. We've got to be content with God's provision. We've got to know this, that whatever we walk through, we don't walk through alone. God says, I'm walking through it with you. And David and Paul both would say, guys, gals, I've seen the Lord be faithful in every single circumstance. The one thing that was consistent was the faithfulness of our Heavenly Father. And we've got to be content with that. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. I've told you, we have this, this passage hanging. It's painted. It's in our house. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. No matter what, God is faithful. And not just kind of faithful. He's greatly faithful. So not only trust your character, trust God's character, not only to be content, but thirdly, in order to resist the temptation of envying sinners, we must continue to obey even when it doesn't make sense. Continue to obey even when it doesn't make sense. In these last few verses, 27 through 40, David basically sums up what he's already said. And Proverbs 14, 12 sums it up. He says in Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way which seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. You lean on human wisdom. You lean on the man's ways. You lean on what seems right. And the, the, the writer of that proverb says it leads to death. You trust the Lord. You trust God's word. Even though it doesn't always jive with our flesh, it leads to life. You can go all the way back to Genesis in the garden. The problem is this. We want to determine for ourselves, just like Adam and Eve did, we want to determine for ourselves right and wrong. We want to be the judge of what is right and what is wrong instead of simply trusting God. And that's why God said, do not eat from that fruit. For when you eat from that tree of the tree of knowledge of evil, your eyes will be open. You will want to determine for yourself what is right and what is wrong. You'll no longer simply take me at my word. And what is it that we see today? Exactly that. Marriage. God says is a man and woman. No, no, it don't have to be that way. We, we, we do things on our own. Created you male and female. No, no, if I want to change that, I can change that too. Everything about, everything about our, our lives in this world, we want, we want to, no, I know what God says, but... I know, what, I know what God says, but yeah, that was 2,000 years ago. We want to determine for ourselves what's right and wrong. God says, no, 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 you trust me. You trusted that what I told you in Hebrews, that my word is active and living, sharper than a double-edged sword, able to pierce both joint and marrow. It was good for then, it was good for today. It doesn't change. And David is repeating how the righteous shall live, and their reward is based on God's character, it's based on God's faithfulness. Our reward, listen to me, our reward in salvation is God Himself. We get God. Paul figured this out. If I would figure this out, if we would figure this out, everything about our life would change. The reward of salvation is God. He's the reward. 
Listen, listen real quickly, and, and this was, this is again, this is uh, yesterday afternoon studying. These, these thoughts came to my head. Look at Philippians 1. Trusting, seeing God as a reward, this is how your perspective changes. Paul is in jail, and he says this, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord, why? Because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and strife, but some from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed as a defense of the gospel. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in, in this I rejoice. Paul says, hey, you want to you lie about me? You want to make a mockery of me? You want to preach Christ? from? That's okay as long as Christ is, as long as Christ is made, up, made much of. He goes on to say in verses 27 through 29, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. He's saying, hey, you don't worry. Essentially what David is saying, don't worry about your opponents. Verse 29, and this is a hard verse. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not for your sake, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, I'm good with that, I'm good with that, but also to suffer for His sake. It's granted. Paul writes that sitting in prison. And he says, guess what? There's a whole bunch of people that are trusting in the Lord that have had their sins forgiven Simply because I'm in prison. You know what Paul says? Okay. Why? Because I get God. I know what God's done for me, and no matter what I give, it will never measure up to everything that God's done for me. He says, to suffer for you, God, on your behalf, if it makes much of you, that's grace. Philippians 3, 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Not just for anyone's sake, for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Do you see who he got? He got God, Christ, and may be found in him. Verse 10, that I may, there's the point, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul says, if, if I've got to suffer in order to know my Savior better, that's okay. Because God's faithful. And I trust His character. And I'm content with His judgments. That's okay. Did Paul go out looking for it? He's not some crazy man that just wanted to suffer, but he said, hey, if you're going to persecute me for believing in Christ, if I'm going to suffer for believing in Christ, that's okay because there's an intimacy with my Savior that's born only through that and that's okay he continued on he continued being faithful why because paul knew that salvation is from the lord david knew salvation is from the lord that's the gift he knew that the lord was our strength in times of trouble to depart from him would have been foolish why because the lord was our strength 
He knew that the Lord was our helper and our deliverer. Where would he go? He, he knew that he was free. He was to take refuge in him. Why would he run? Why would he not continue with him? It's his source of strength. It's his refuge. We don't live by results. We live by faith. And, and being a covenant believer, being a, 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 a child of God, changes my hopes, my life, my motives. There is a radical difference between the faith and the life of a follower and a non-follower. A radical difference. And that's ultimately what David is showing. He, he is painting a picture for us of the faithfulness of God. And he is showing that God sustains the faithful and he destroys the wicked. The character of God is at stake here. I, I read an illustration. I'll close with this. I read an illustration there was a story of a, of a farmer in a, in a Midwestern state who had a very great, strong disdain for Christians. And every morning he would intentionally go out and plow his field and, and stir up dust and stir up noise around the, around the church. And, and, and as the people pulled in, he would shake his fist at them and, and uh, as they passed by to, to worship. And, and October comes along and... Uh, if you're like me, if you were part of that church, you'd be thinking, yeah, October, God, don't give that man any crops. Well, in October came, and, and this farmer who had done that had the finest crop ever, the best in the entire county. He even went so far after the crop was finalized, he placed an advertisement in the local paper belittling Christians and their faith in God. Near, near, the end, near the end of the article, he said, he wrote this, Faith in God must not mean much if someone like me can prosper. The Christians in the community responded that quite politely and quietly, probably different than your pastor. It would have been a little frustrating. But in the next edition of the town paper, they took out a small ad that simply read this, God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. That's how they replied. God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. Believer, God doesn't always settle his accounts in August of 2014. He may not settle his account in September of 2014. He may not settle his accounts... For many years to come. See, for three days after Jesus died, it seemed the world had won. Those disciples thought they had believed in vain. That their Savior was dead, that all was lost, that they had lost everything themselves. They had abandoned everything. It appeared the world had won. I, I can only imagine that those were some of the longest few days in their lives. And yet on the third day, Jesus rose out of that grave and it changed everything. You see, Christ suffered and then He was glorified. The question is, why do we think He would be any different than us? Luke says, a servant is not above his master, but when he has been fully trained, he will be like his master. See, the economy in the Christian faith is this. We suffer for Christ 
We make much of Christ, and then guess what? He spends the rest of eternity making much of us. That's the way it was with our Savior. That's the way it was with us. That's the way it was for Abraham. That's the way it was with Sarah. That's the way it was with Joseph, with Moses, with Job, with Daniel, with Stephen, with Peter, with John, with Paul. The list goes on. They probably wondered if it was worth it. When Stephen was being stoned, when Peter's hanging upside down on a cross, you think he wondered? Did the wicked prosper? Are the wicked prospering and yet I'm suffering? And yet they looked at God and His promises and they were encouraged. L- listen to what it says as I close here for sure in Hebrews eleven thirteen. He's just listed great men and women of faith and it says this, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. They saw them. They welcomed them from afar. They didn't receive them, but they welcomed them. They saw them. They lived by faith. Look at verse 40. Verse 39 and 40. Later on, he says, And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. There's something better coming. If you believe that this world is as good as it gets, you're mistaken. For the believer, this world is as bad as it gets. God has promised something so much better, and He's promised it in Christ. Romans eight seventeen. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may be glorified with Him. But listen to what Paul says in... Romans 8.18, For I do not consider the present sufferings worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. There's something better coming. And when that glory is revealed in us, it will, you won't, de- I hear people say all the time, when I get to God, I'm gonna, no you won't. No you won't. If you get to heaven, you're going to be on your face because the Lord is going to be that awesome. And anything that it cost us in the pursuit of Him on this earth will be forgotten because it's better. It's better. We get Christ. We get Christ. God has not settled the accounts. You, you might find yourself today frustrated as the disciples were thinking the world is one. Listen, keep planting seeds. Keep trusting the Lord. Keep sowing in faithfulness. In the proper season, you will receive a harvest. God has promised it. You will receive a harvest. Trust God at His word. Trust His character. Be content with where He has you and what you're going through, even if it doesn't make sense. Because the righteous will be rewarded and the wicked will be judged. The beauty of the gospel is this, that though they may slay us, they cannot separate us from the love of Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's not, it's not that I won't go through anything. It's this, that though I go through it, it will not separate me from Christ's love. And that's the beauty of the gospel. And I pray that we will be satisfied in that.